You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Blaze Media. We are here for another exciting new week here Monday morning. And I'm telling you, folks, I'm a little bit under the weather, but I am just totally power to go for this week. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on. I know we didn't have a Foreign Policy Friday show. Um, so much more to talk about. So much going on with the Senate now scuttling pro-Israel votes because they're worried about the Hamas caucus and the Democrat Party. We have stuff on health care going on where, unfortunately, it looks like this administration is going to cave on expanding Obamacare even more. Um, don't mean to scare you, but there's a lot of stuff that conservatives should should care about. But, you know, I keep coming back to our bread and butter. And when, whenever we do these Foreign Policy Friday shows, we talk about the fact that foreign policy and national security really starts here at home. It's all about the homeland. It's all about our border. And as you know, we've spent the last couple of years working on the nexus of the drug crisis, increasing violence in a lot of our metro areas, even terrorism, obviously how it ties into the migration, the UACs, the family units, then sanctuary cities covering for these networks in these cities allowed to operate undetected, which is a big reason why this illicit drug crisis exploded roughly around 2013 to 2015. We had Todd Benzman on, former Texas DPS agent, now a free agent just to speak and write freely about this stuff. And he, he did a riveting show on the terrorism angle. I really wanted to educate all of us more on the danger of the cartels, not just at the border, but in our communities. How we have what is essentially a national security threat on par with and as vicious as any Islamic terrorism, but it's right in our communities It's directed and controlled at our borders, and nobody in government seems to care. Nobody is articulating this. I mean, the president has touched on this here and there, but I wish he'd give a national televised address right now when we're having this kind of partial shutdown fight to harness attention. So I really want to bring your attention to someone that you really need to know about, and you're going to have a real treat today. Today, we're going to be joined by Jason Jones. He spent 24 years with Texas Department of Public Safety in their Intel and Counterterrorism Division. Um, Now he retired from DPS. He teaches the Intel community both at a federal but also state and local law enforcement level across the country. He teaches them about border security, but with a particular focus on the Mexican cartels. He started the – he developed the Texas Border Security Operations Center currently under the Texas Rangers and really important perspective, particularly from a state entity that is doing good work on this, um, way out ahead of where the feds are. So I figured what better person to kind of close the loop on this long, ongoing discussion than Jason Jones. Hey, Jason, are you on the line? I'm on. Dan, good morning, and good morning to your listeners. Thanks for having me this morning. And thanks for coming on. I hope I did you justice. I know you've done a lot more in your career, but... um. You know, certainly your work at Texas DPS. I, I really want you to kind of give a full spectrum picture. The the American people, and particularly this audience, is very clued into uh, the migration problem, and you know they're aware of obviously when you have a bunch of illegal immigrants coming from very violent, volatile countries. Um, we're going to have uh, certainly the fiscal public charge, some cultural issues, problems in our schools, um, crime, but. Nobody seems to connect the dots that the wind didn't blow them in. There's something standing between (laughs) Central America and our border, and those are the Mexican cartels. Could you just give an overview of what exactly they do and how it ties into not just the drug trafficking, 
but also the human trafficking before we kind of get into specifics and just shoot for the moon, take as much time as you need. (laughs) Well, thank you for that question. And it is at the very core of what I believe the national news media on both sides is missing. And that is when you talk about the movement of people or contraband in or out of the United States at our Southwest border, all of that, all of that is controlled by the Mexican cartels. And if you are going to move a product and it's hard for our listeners to, to really kind of put your mind around this. I mean, I hate to even have to say it, but children and people are now a commodity to the cartels. So they have to pay what is known as the piso or the tax to the cartels as they transit from the southern part of Mexico all the way up to our northern border. And on average, each individual pays, depending upon what country of origin where they come from, approximately $5,000. Now, if you come from a country with a terrorism nexus such as Pakistan or Somalia, you're going to pay a lot more, only because the cartels look at you and decide that you're going to be charged more money. So it depends where you come from, but this is basically how it works. And it is also why you see them go to war with one another, because the money that they make is through controlling the plazas throughout Mexico. And once you're in control of a plaza, everything that moves through is paid for. And that's why they battle. That's why they battle for control of that space. And that's basically the way it works. And it's also why You are not going to enter the United States without working and contracting with the Mexican cartels. You know, we have the cartel level, I guess you'd say the wholesale level of human and drug trafficking uh, that's been going on for quite some time. One of the things that I learned from reading Texas DPS reports that really was a surprise to me the last couple of years is that in recent years, maybe a decade or so, we don't just have cartels at our border, which should be scary enough, which should really force our government to marshal, you know, by a factor of 10,000, the resources that we marshal when, oh, this tribal group is fighting that tribal group for this area of land in Somalia or Syria or Afghanistan. Well, we got it right at our border, tens of thousands of Mexicans dying every year as a result of it. Um, it's enabling, obviously, all the legal immigration. They're being empowered by it. We should care enough about that. But I want to take this today to the next level. Atlanta, Denver, Dallas, Chicago, New York. I mean, all our communities really everywhere. Isn't it true that now the the cartels have contracted with both more smaller scale street street gangs we've always had in our cities and as well as transnational gangs? to then serve as the enforcers, the distributors of the drugs in in our communities. And it's being directed, meaning, you know, we think we're a sovereign nation, but it's being directed by these cartels. It absolutely is. And it's been going on for some time. You know, actually, I can push that back to a decade ago in 2009 when I was stationed in Laredo as the Gulf Cartel and the Los Zetas begin to split. It was the first time that we were obtaining debris from the Texas Mexican Mafia operating in Mexico, working directly for the Los Zetas, who were conducting operations on hits on U.S. citizens who owed money to the cartels for lost loads. So really, that, that nexus that you just talked about has been going on for some time. And really what we see now and is, is even another evolution, which is starting to occur, where the cartels themselves have command and control networks here and are conducting a lot more of their own operations rather than just working with what we call tier one gangs. And what Texas did, and I give Director Steve McCraw a lot of credit for this, is that when he came onto the department in 2009, he shifted the agency towards border security because as a former FBI SAC out of San Antonio, he saw this dynamic shift occurring where the cartels were contracting with certain gangs in the state of Texas and throughout the country uh, to push their contraband into the U.S. and then also push it back to Mexico. So absolutely what you're saying is occurring. It has been occurring for some time. And, you know, DPS went to this model of looking at tier one or at gangs in Texas and then determining which ones were, you know, 
affecting certain things. And let me give you an example to your listeners on this. How many of them were recruiting juveniles to support and work with the cartels? How many gangs were affecting multiple regions of the state? How many of them were killing our citizens, both in the country and out of the country? And what are the number of operators occurring? And we ranked over 2,000 gangs in the state of Texas to focus 2,600 law enforcement and agencies in Texas towards these tier one gangs. And we, and we came up with five. And it has really helped us in what we call the, the unified command and collaborative approach of going after these gangs who support contract and work directly with the Mexican cartels in the United States and outside the United States. You know, one of, one of the things that I've learned a lot more in recent years, so, you know, we, we, we try to think broadly here, and I want to tie that into my work as a quasi-journalist, quasi-conservative activist. Um, and, you know, what you guys were doing as a law enforcement agency, the need to look broad and take a holistic approach to all these issues, not decompartmentalize them. One of the things that I felt has helped me kind of come uh, hone in on the truth, discover people like you, get more educated on the issue, is that I looked at it both from a domestic crime and a foreign policy national security issue. And, you know, simultaneously, there, there's, there was this big legislative fight over what they called criminal justice reform. Oh, we're just locking up these low-level drug dealers for too long. And I, and I was noticing that for quite some time, you look at the website of these major metro areas, the, um, I mean, the major uh, U.S. attorneys' offices for Chicago, New York, and almost every guy arrested and being sentenced, sentenced they were transnational cartel guys or working for the Mex- Mexican mafia, MS-13, um, Latin kings, and – they were like really bad dudes often had a rap sheets that they felt they were responsible for murder, uh, arson, armed robbery, all sorts of things. But ultimately they would nail a conviction only on drug trafficking. I was like, Holy heck, these are the guys you're letting out. And then that's when I realized that more and more this drug trafficking problem, it wasn't kind of like the eighties and nineties, maybe kind of some local small time, you know, black, gang criminals in the urban areas that this was very much at a primary level driven by um the transnational gangs and the cartels and recently i just want to get your comment on this i asked the ice director acting ice director of the boston field office where they have a tremendous tremendous problem in new hampshire maine massachusetts with uh, uh illicit not prescription but illicit drug overdoses and i said how much of it at a primary level is an illegal immigration problem and he said, Daniel, it's 100%. Yeah, he's absolutely right. I mean, if you look at all of the criminal organizations operating in domestically in the United States, they go to the Mexican cartels to obtain their narcotics, whether that be you know, what we're seeing in the 21st century with the fentanyl and opioid epidemic. Um, they contract and work with the cartels to get their supplies in. I mean, think about it. You know, when you talk about controlled substances such as opium uh, or heroin and fentanyl, uh, methamphetamine and cocaine, the drugs that we see on the streets of, of those big four, as we call them, that are out there are coming from Mexico who are getting those uh, chemical precursors from China and other parts of the world and importing them in. And that's a very important point because when we're going after on OSADEF or RICO cases, going after these large uh, criminal organizations of tier one gangs who are contracting, working with the cartels, we are spending at times with our agencies hundreds of thousands of dollars in a year to two year period to take down 30 to 40 people. And that's fantastic. But now you've spent all this money. You go after these people. You don't even have them all in jail as you're doing the roundup. And Mexico is calling sources that work with you and say, hey, in the next 48 hours, here's the new boss that's taken over the organization. Here, I need you to reach out and I need you to get a house where he and his family are going to live. I need, uh, I need you to get a stash house or where we're going to hold the new drugs coming in and get this thing going and this operation back up and running in 48 hours. This is the quantum leap and change that is occurring domestically, totally driven from outside the borders of the United States. And I got to tell you, Dan, it's why I get so frustrated because we, we are not talking to the American people and showing them is the influence and what the cartels are doing in the United States, but also globally. 
Now, you know, we, we, when we talk about cartels, our vision, because we've been talking about them for so long, is that they're drug traffickers in Mexico, and it's America has the drug problem. And yes, while that is true, they have evolved uh, tremendously. If you look at Sinaloa cartel, they are operating in 54 countries at one time now because Chapo's been arrested. It's less than that. Look at El Mincho and Cartel Jalisco, new generation. Uh, the uh, U.S. Department of Treasury has put them in over 42 nations around the world. Right now, that organization is getting $200,000 a kilo of cocaine going to Australia. They're getting $100,000 uh, for one kilo of cocaine going to Russia. And that's why I say that what has happened is we've had a quantum shift, and that is that the Mexican cartels are no longer just drug trafficking organizations. They are global violent networks for a multitude of reasons, not only because they're operating globally, but because they are also employing terrorist organizations such as the FARC to conduct their baseline training. They have killed over 200,000 Mexican citizens since 2007. Think of that for a second. I mean, you know, it's one thing to put out data and talk about numbers, but, you know, there's not an American that is not seen on YouTube or national media at some point, these horrific videos of them slaughtering men, women, and children in Mexico. And then you take the integration of military-grade weapons, such as light anti-tank weapons, surface-to-air missiles, and hand grenades, um, you know, the tactics that they're employing and the tradecraft that they're gaining from working with terrorists and from special forces units, it's a real problem and it's time that we look at them in the direction they are and what they've become. And I will tell you, I take a lot, I, I take a lot of blows from the intelligence community and federal law enforcement agencies that do not want to evolve to the way things have shifted. And it is time. It's not my fault that these organizations have become what they have. We've got to look at where they are and evolve to it. And unfortunately, federal agencies and the intelligence community are going to have to start paying these cartels the attention they deserve and create policies to go after them because we cannot arrest our way out of this problem any longer. So, I mean, what's interesting is you're talking about when you say federal officials, you obviously mean the executive branch, you know, FBI, law enforcement. I, I don't deal with them much, but what I see is more congressmen, and they're even more in the dark and more ignorant, and most of them couldn't even name you the name of a single cartel. Everyone knows about ISIS, but they couldn't you know, name you Zetas and Jalisco and Sinaloa. And what I find amazing, the only action they take on this is to them the drug problem is doctors, even though prescriptions are down to in, uh, nationally about 2002 levels and some states back to 1990 levels. Um you know, prescription overdoses are down. It's all illicit drugs. And then, you know, when it comes to, you're saying we can't arrest their way out of it, but they don't even want to do the arrests anymore. They're like, these are low level drug, uh, um, you know, drug addicts, they'll often call, call them as if we're, you know, just locking up in federal prison for 30 years, people on meth, you know, on um, smoking marijuana in college or something. And I'm like, holy heck, I mean, these are the real cartel members. And, you know, I started reading. There are a couple of reporters that have done good reports on different areas of the country. I've tried to do it myself, speaking with DA in local areas. I got some meetings lined up this week. And um, they really, they're really starting to talk about this notion of they are finding really nasty things happening, not just in Juarez and, uh, you know, Ciudad Laredo, but... In Greensboro, North Carolina, sheriffs are talking about beheadings and kidnappings. And, you know, I've read a lot of federal reports, whether they're Congressional Research Service, even DEA threat assessments. They said, no, 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 there's no spillover violence. We got a cartel problem, but you know, we don't yet have the what you're seeing in Mexico on our soil. Isn't that not true anymore? Yeah, unfortunately, it is. And. I, I'll tell you, it's it's really interesting. I've briefed a lot of people from both sides of the aisle and Republicans and Democrats and the state level and at the federal level. And what may really surprise your viewers is it is in most cases that I've I've briefed these folks. It's a lack of knowledge of what is occurring. You know, we we think that we elect our, our leaders. They go up there and they get these high level briefings. That's not what I find. I find that usually many of them are just completely stunned at the information that we provide them and that 
you know, it's just naivety from not being properly briefed from these federal agencies as to the threats that our nation is now facing. I know that may surprise a lot of folks because, you know, immediately we say, well, it's a Republican issue or it's a Democratic issue, but that's truly what I see. And so that's why I come out now and I talk about these things both publicly, privately, and to law enforcement at different levels, you know, that we can discuss. But it is a real challenge to get people to think differently from what these cartels were to where they are today. I mean, let me just give you an example. Your listeners right now can remember a time in this country when we never even heard the term domestically human trafficking. Mm. That occurred in other countries around the world and in, in underdeveloped nations. Today, it is not only here, it is in every state in this country. And we first saw it at the Southwest border. I can remember cases when I was stationed in Brownsville where we had uh, one of the first cases I remember was a woman that was brought in the country. Her husband had her smuggled by some coyotes. She was stripped naked and uh, tied up and duct taped in the back of the car. And we were pinging the phone trying to locate her while they were selling her from Dallas to Houston, um, putting her into the trade. It was absolutely horrific. I can remember thinking, my God, what is happening? And now it's across the country. And now why is the question, why did American law enforcement not stop this? Why is it now plaguing us across this country? And we've not done anything to stop it. And I'll tell you why. It's really a failed policy issue in regards to how we collect data in the 21st century. Everything, Dan, everything you and I have discussed in the last 15 minutes is not captured under the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Uniform Crime Report. It was created in 1929 and implemented in 1934. And to this day, to this day in 2019, it is how um, our nation collects data to understand the threats that we're facing. And it doesn't capture any of the stuff we're talking about. So let me give you just kind of a quick example of some of the things that it captures and what it doesn't capture. So um, you're talking about murder, manslaughter, forcible rape, robbery, aggravated robbery, burglary, theft, and motor vehicle theft. Those are currently captured. Our citizens go, well, okay, that's probably just about all the crimes. But look at what is not captured, public corruption. Along our southwest border right now, the level of cartel infiltration at local and federal state and federal levels is unbelievable. Look at the kidnappings that are occurring, the extortions, drug trafficking. Our nation has been dealing with drug trafficking and in a supposedly a drug war since the 60s. I mean, that's almost 60 years. And to this day, at a national level, the American people have no idea how much dope is actually seized in this country. Human trafficking, labor trafficking, money laundering, weapon seizure, cybercrime. I mean, the list goes on. So really, when I, when I tell you that it's not a Republican or Democratic issue, it's not. It's a failed policy of government agencies specifically, and I'm just going to be very honest here, the Federal Bureau of Investigation to, in, to evolve to the 21st century threats. You know, that you're the first person I ever heard of who actually articulated it this way. There's a lot of failures. As you well know, and I want to get this in a minute, there's a lot of PC because, you know, if you spoke the truth and you would actually have to commit to the policies where the truth would lead you to, it would slay some sacred cows in terms of policies and immigration and other things. But you're talking about data. Could you just elaborate a little bit more what you mean by the failure to capture data? Do you mean like one of the things I've noticed, again, from studying domestic crime, but now that I've been more educated, more and more I'm seeing there's a huge foreign component to this, particularly when you're talking about the nexus of violence in our urban areas and drug trafficking. But, um, you know, I, I'm I'm young. I'm younger than you, but I'm old enough to remember before the what they called the Giuliani era, when crime started to plummet in the early '90s. And I remember, you know, I've lived in Baltimore, Maryland, my whole life around that area, and it was really bad around '89, '90, '91. And then all of a sudden, that crime bubble popped, and it went down and down and down every year. It was one of the best miracles we ever had. But then all of us noticed sometime during the era of Obama's second term, really. Um, around 2012, 2014, and certainly 2015, 2016, crime really began to spike everywhere. Now, the FBI uniform data did capture it in 2015, maybe 2016 too, but it, it seems like they're just – it's going down again. They're saying, no, crime's going down. 
how come my eyes aren't seeing what I know is true? Well, it goes back to exactly what I was just saying, and that is that the types of crimes that we are dealing with completely caused by the Southwest border crisis, and it is absolutely a crisis. I mean, in November, we had over 63,000 people, never mind the 10,000 pounds of narcotics seized a week by local, state, and federal agencies just in Texas alone. Um, It is a true crisis that's going on, but when you have... Uh, these types of crimes occurring that I've mentioned, and none of it is captured so that the American people can see the evolution of crime and where it is occurring. It's exactly why we are in the middle of a debate, a government shutdown. And those agencies right now possess the data. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Two days ago, Secretary Nielsen stated that there had been 3,000 special interest alien apprehensions at our southwest border. You You may have seen that come out, Dan. Um, she was trying to say that, look, those are people who come from a country with a terrorism nexus, and that's the number that have been apprehended crossing our southwest border. And I got calls immediately from all over the country. Jason, is this data right? What's going on? Well, so here's kind of the background to that. That data has been kept secure within the United States Customs and Border Protection. That data is not publicly uh, available to everyone. So now both left and right national news media organizations are calling them liars or saying it's not true. Where is these numbers coming from? Because why? We don't share this with the American people and we need to, it is time for transparency when we're in the middle of this and our country, you know, is being torn apart left and right. Why don't we just show the American people what's really happening and give them the historical, all that SIA data, All of it needs to be available to the American people. There's nothing sensitive about it. It doesn't give what we call PII data, which is personal identifying information. The American people need to know who's crossing or where people are crossing and how many. And they should not know it on a yearly basis. They should know it on a monthly basis. And they need to know how it affects them. And if there are terrorists, which there are, I'm going to tell you right now, there are terrorists crossing our southern border. And I can give you a few right off the top of my head. Um, those numbers need to come out as well as to how many links to terrorist organizations have been apprehended. There's nothing secure about that. There's no reason that that can't be given to the American people. It's time for transparency. And really the failure is nothing more than these government agencies evolving to the 21st century approach. And that's why NYPD is so successful. Because they make an end run around the feds. They, well, not only do they do that, but they use Comstat. I mean, look, you're talking about an agency, and I worked very close with them on the terrorism front. You know, they used Comstat back in the 90s. After 9-11, they pushed their officers all over the world because the FBI model was broken. It wasn't working fast enough to tell them what was happening. And what have they done? They have dropped homicides from 2,200 murders a year to less than 350 sustained Dan, that's unprecedented. It is fantastic law enforcement. You know, and you got to give men and women like uh, Commissioner Ray Kelly, uh, former Assistant Commissioner David Cohen, current Assistant Commissioner John Miller and Chief Galati a lot of credit for doing that, because that agency is not just a police agency for a city anymore. They have truly begun to protect this nation. And that's where we need to get the FBI. I love the FBI. I love the men and women of it. But those great men and women are stuck in an outdated system at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They just are. And so many uh, commissioners, sheriffs, and police chiefs know it. It's time we talk about it and get it out. You know, and and our, our listeners here, you could always shoot me an email, dhurwitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Let me know what you want me to ask, Jason, because we're already blowing through this show way too quickly. Um, so much more to talk about. Uh, Jason, you know, you mentioned about the SIAs, and I, I didn't want to go too much into that because I've done shows on that, although we could you know, do a whole show just on this. But something just piked my, my interest. You know, we, we, We're averaging 60,000, 63,000 apprehensions a month now at the border. Just apprehensions, that would be an annualized rate of over 700,000. Now, those are the ones we apprehend. There's always been debate in general how many you know what is the interdiction rate how many are we not apprehending I want to want to know if a you could speak to just the general interdiction rate but b isn't it logical that if this and I've had border agents tell me this that given that the entire flow is not you know 
natural. The wind is not blowing it in. It's orchestrated by the cartels, and they have to guarantee a certain success rate of non-detection for those that are really paying a lot, whether they're known criminals, because known criminals don't want to surrender themselves to border agents. They can't get caught. Um, and certainly the SIAs, they're going to want to get in without detection. Um, they, some of them pay twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a pop. Isn't it very likely that a good share of the ones we're not apprehending because the agents are tied up with the ones we are in the bogus societies are a lot of the you know dangerous individuals? Sure. So let me let me give you some data here. Uh, in 2013, it's been a few years now, but in 2013, right as the uh, unaccompanied alien children really began spiking at our southwest border. I know some of your listeners will probably remember when we just had this surge of children begin to hit in 2014. Um, the United States Customs and Border Protection flew some spy craft. That's about all I'll say on it over the border to see what we were capturing and what we were missing. And what they came back with, and Congressman McCall um, has talked about this publicly, is that we found that we are capturing between 38 and 42% of what's actually crossing in regards to people. Now, that's not contraband, that's people. The- when we talk to the, to the cartels themselves about contraband, what they will tell us is that we really get about 10% of the narcotics that moving north. They consider that just doing business. Well, well wait a minute. Back up. <laughs> you just <laughs> you said that too quick. 38 to 42% are captured. So are, are you telling me are you telling me that if on this year this year let's say September at the end of September 2019 when we're done with FY 2019 CBP comes out with numbers that will show roughly 700,000 apprehended. You're telling me that easily it could be a total of more than 1.5 million that crossed the border. Absolutely. And now I, I will tell you, the data that I just gave you was back in 2013. It's a little dated. And U.S. Customs and Border Protection has absolutely gotten a lot better at their tradecrafted, sure. stopping people at the border. Obviously, there is a lot more media attention. We've got a lot of new programs and a lot more Border Patrol agents. And also, the great work of the men and women of CBP in collaborating with local and state law enforcement like they have done with us. So I would tell you that those numbers really are a lot better than they were back then, but we don't have any concrete data to show that. So um, I would tell you that that is what it was in 2013, and absolutely it could be that today. I mean, the cartels are getting people through, because, and why do we know that? Because in Texas alone, we average 6,000 apprehensions a week. Think of that number. I mean, imagine what it takes to move the logistics to capture people in along our southwest border. Well, we're averaging 63,000 people right now. It is a monumental task. And, you know, if you've never been to the border, I got to tell you, Dan, everything bites. Everything's got a thorn. Everything stings. And then you got the extreme heat temperatures down there. Um, I give the mental and CBP a lot of credit. They are great people. They're saving lives every day. Uh, protecting those that are that are crossing, trying to do rescues. They're just doing some amazing work down there, but it is extremely challenging. Wow. You know, and, and that's the thing. To me, I think it's safe to say there's going to be at least a million in that case total that cross, even if we have a 60%, 70% apprehension rate. And that gets me to the point that I was jolted when I saw Secretary Nielsen say, well, this is two, three weeks ago before they break for, um, before the Christmas break, at a House Judiciary Committee hearing, uh, Congressman Steve King from Iowa said, you know, since I came here, we talked about 12 million illegals. Then it went down to 11, and now they still talk about 12 million. But then I hear, you know, others say 24 million, and there hasn't been, it has never been updated. You know, it, well, what's the truth? And I was surprised. She actually said publicly, there's definitely more than 12 million. Yeah, you know, I I don't know the numbers on what's actually here and, you know, what goes back out and and stays. But what I do know is that, you know, we have got to look at this problem differently and recognize that we've been talking about this border problem for so long. It is time to look at it and and really address it and fix it, not only because of the number of people that are crossing, but the, the contraband as well. You know, we are watching as these cartels become more and more violent. And the, if you really think about it, since 2006, 12 years now, 
the Mexican military has been pushing their special forces to go after them, and they've not been able to win. I mean, think of that. These cartels, when you sit down and you talk to these sicarios and these, these men, they believe themselves to be commandos. They go through basic training. They go through intermediate training. They go through advanced training. And when you talk to them about, look, you know, you know when you're going to be dead in the next three to five years, what are you thinking? You seem like a bright guy when they're looking across from you at a table and you're talking to them. And they will, when they look back at you and they say something like this, it really grounds you to the level of the problem we're facing. When they look back at you and they say, better to be uh, alive for the next three to five years and live like a king than another day in the dirt with nothing. Wow. It makes you realize that they, these cartels have plenty of people in Mexico to recruit. And it's a problem that we're going to be faced with for a very long time. So we're sitting and spending, you know, I just saw the special inspector general for Afghanistan. We spent $125 billion on just the reconstruction of Afghanistan, not the war. The war was probably a trillion, you know, total, and then all the deaths. Here's what I don't understand: What else geopolitically has resulted in the following? Okay, so seventy thousand dead from drugs every year. Uh, just the the criminality is insane. Just the and I know we spoke about this privately. I spoke, speak about it on the show every week. The number of ICE apprehensions, the number of crimes accrued, most of them convictions, much less arrests. Between all them, like over two thousand homicides a year from illegals apprehended, and that and that's about seventeen and a half percent of our annual homicides. Um, tr- trillions of dollars in cost of illegal immigration. If you look at a course of a 10 year period isn't isn't this by a factor of 10,000 on par with what anything would be a declaration of war on our country and why hasn't this finally provoked us not just to work together with FBI and Texas and DA but downright get DOD involved. And I don't mean attack the Mexican people. I mean help them. We're so busy trying to help the people of the Middle East. And, oh, we you know we want to make sure they don't recruit more people and, and do na- – I'm, I'm not into nation building. But if we're going to do nation building, shouldn't the number one place be south of our border? Absolutely. And, and we should be collaborating – with them in Mexico at a much different level. I've sat across from many Mexican generals and provided briefings, provided intelligence in a collaborative environment. And while they have a big problem with corruption at very high levels, which we could do a whole show on that alone, and I won't get into, there are many of those men and women who are fighting for their country and fighting for the Mexican people. And in many cases, they are outgunned, they are outtrained, and they don't have the intelligence they need to drive 24-7 operations. And we tried to help that as much as we could, working with our federal and intelligence community partners in doing that. And uh, Mexico has got some challenges. It's, it's really got to look at it and it's got to face, but so do we. And why is it, to answer your question, why is it that, that our intelligence community doesn't see the problem for what it is? And it all goes back to failed policies and evolving. You know, right now, there is no such thing in our government as spillover violence. Do you know why that is? We had many conversations with DHS and FBI. They cannot agree on what the definition should be. That, that's the reason. It's a policy failure between FBI, DHS, and DEA as to what the definition of spillover violence is. All of that was occurring as we're dealing with beheadings in Padre Island, as we're dealing with shootings and hits in Dallas, Texas, uh, where bosses from Gulf Cartel are conducting hits in Dallas. On our I mean, soil. We, on our soil. And it's not because anyone is lying. It's because these individual crimes occur. They get reported. People say, oh, my God, that's occurring. But where is it captured? You see, the, the, the links to transnational crime and global violent networks to crimes that are happening domestically are not reported in the Uniform Crime Report. It does not provide the capability for that. And the newer system known as NIBRS, National Incident-Based Reporting System is only working in 30 states, and of those 30 states, it does not even uh, capture all agencies within those states. So the data is flawed. It's, It's hard to believe that in 2019, Dan, with all the technology we have, that this country is not collecting the data. But what do we do? We go back and we say, well, it's a Republican issue or it's a Democrat issue, and really, 
It is a failure to evolve in the 21st century approach to law enforcement and a government agency is not wanting to evolve to the threats we're facing. And that's what I always say. If you want to have a debate over how much immigration you want, a half a million, a million, a million and a half, how many green cards you want to issue, let's have that debate. But, I mean, to have a border that has to remain like this because it will implicate the legal immigration agenda and therefore we can't deal with it. It's just it's it's. It amazes me. We've spent trillions in the Middle East. And I just want to read to you a quote um, from uh, DEA's brand new threat assessment, their 2018 threat, threat assessment. Several street gangs in Chicago are heavily involved in drug distribution, violent crime, and other criminal activity. The primary street gangs that pose the greatest threat are the gangster disciples, black disciples, black P, Stone Nation, Vice Lords, and Latin Kings, because I mentioned that because they're involved in Texas too. Dispute uh, Disputes between rival gangs or between individual gang members remain a contributing factor in Chicago's rise in violent crime. See, often this is reported as kind of domestic. You often see drug traffickers or DUI, a guy kills someone with, with a DUI, and they'll say, Oak Ridge, Tennessee man arrested. Like, all right, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And then you, you study, and you're like, well, no, this guy was a Latin Kings member. So, you know, and, and just one more thing. Um, I, I know you know him as well. Um, Derek Maltz, the former head of uh, DEA Special Operations Division, he told me that towards the end of his tenure there, maybe, you know, 2010 to 2014, he would start to see these cases where on our soil in these cities, you would have – um. Rival gangs have gang-on-gang, cartel-on-cartel violence. But then, you know, they'll get a address of a stash house. And the stash house, they'll, they'll get a wrong address. And they'll be innocent Americans that they come in, invade, and torture them to death. How much of this are yes. you seeing? Yeah, we've definitely seen that in South Texas as well and, and, you know, throughout the country. But the problem is that when they're arrested, they're arrested for what? Murder or aggravated assault. And the links and ties to transnational criminal organizations or global violent networks are never made. And that's where the problem is. And that's where I go back to why and how important the data is on the collection of what we're collecting. I mean, look, we had one of the biggest attacks upon our great nation on uh, 9-11. To this day, we do not capture how many terrorists are apprehended in this country and give that to the American people routinely. We don't. I mean, you, you know, you, were, you and I just talked last night about... Um, one of these reports that came out on the number of KST encounters across the country in 2016. You know, the American people don't see that. And that's where the real policy failure is. And that's why I come out and talk about what I do, because across our nation, we are seeing tradecraft that the tier one gangs, such as Latin Kings, as you mentioned, uh, are obtaining from global violent networks. And that is where things get really scary. When we see these individuals learning the tradecraft of how to utilize armored vehicles in uh, military-grade weapons in two-man, four-man, ten-man tactics, our everyday law enforcement officers domestically are not capable of handling that. That's not what they train for. The world is shifting, and we must evolve to it. And I'm a firm believer that if we can't get the little things right, we are never going to get the big things right. And the first thing we've got to start doing is looking at the data adjusting it and and it needs it needs to be available to the american people um how much do i have you before you got to give your briefing five ten minutes uh what time is it so, yeah uh, ten thirty nine. yeah you got about five minutes with five, five minutes with you okay I'll, I'll make it quick um you know i just want to see if we could if you just kind of give our audience an idea to quantify the degree of criminality, the degree of criminality from foreign nationals. We have our own problems. We have our own domestic violent problems. We have a national dialogue about the school shootings and you know, different issues. But by golly, I mean, external violence coming from foreign nationals is so redressable. It doesn't need to be there. That's why we have a federal government beyond 90,000 local governments, 50 state governments um, to protect us from external threats. And yet you mentioned no data. I'm having a hard time quantifying, but the data I see, whether it's the number of ICE apprehensions by criminal category in a given year, whether it's prison population in in California, the degree of criminality from foreign nationals is insane. What what can you share with us from what you see in Texas to kind of just quantify maybe in a general sense how how, how much of a problem it is? Yeah, yeah, great question. Let me – 
Uh, I, let me address it like this. In, in 2014, we had our uh, legislative session. At that time, we had had all of these unaccompanied alien children, uh, meaning those children that cross at our southern border who are 17 years of age or under that do not have any family with them, just showing up, many of them uh, barely alive. I mean, just some horrible situations. And the Texas legislature was able, because of what Steve McCraw and the Border Security Operations Center under the Texas Rangers had done working with a now think of this you talk about true collaboration working with 171 agencies from Brownsville, Texas, in all the way into New Mexico, giving every bit of data from every seizure, every arrest they had to the state police so that they could share that back with those agencies as to what it looked like and what was occurring around them, but also able to give that to the Texas legislature that year alone. We received $880 million in one legislative session to drive border operations 24-7, 365 for the next two and a half years in a collaborative environment with the United States Customs and Border Protection, state and other local agencies to include the federal intelligence community who could help us on the Mexico side. It was an unbelievable unprecedented collaborative effort. Why? Because data showed the executive leaders of our great state, what the problem set was. And it was really something to watch. I had never seen a legislative session basically look at our director and say, sir, we're looking at the data. Tell us what you need to be successful. And we got it. I mean, at this point, the great state of Texas has got high flying aircraft, which I won't go into a lot of detail uh, on because it's protecting the country. Um, Boats that are equipped with night vision, thermal, um, 240 Gulf machine guns on them. I mean, we have really upgraded to meet the threat at the southwest border. Never mind the hundreds of agents, rangers, aircraft operators, CID agents, and highway patrolmen that every week were going to the border rotating literally for two and a half years to meet this threat. That's to the level that we were facing down there. And I'll just give your audience one more uh, incident. In late 2011, during one of our border operations, uh, we had a large shootout with the cartel, over 1,200 rounds fired. Now, think of that in a domestic law enforcement situation. I never heard of that. Exactly. The national media only covered about 10 seconds of it. We were stunned. So the, the incidents that are occurring along that southwest border, uh, there are many of them that are not making it out, and it's time that it happened. And that's why I say that you know, transparency is key. It's important that DHS recognize this, pull the data, start getting out to the American people where everyone can see it so that we're not blaming the left, we're not blaming the right. And in doing so, the federal government will then support the men and women on the ground and they'll get the funding that needs to happen. But it all goes back to when I'm briefing these folks and I'm talking to these new leaders in Congress and others, they just don't hear what's happening as we've talked about today. And and I'm honored that at least my audience got to hear this treat. I know you really are on a tight schedule. Could you promise us that you're going to do a part two with us? There's just so much more to say. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. I really do. Thanks for having me on. And anytime, be happy to do it, Dan. Well, there really you have it, folks. You. That was Jason Jones, veteran of Texas DPS. Wow. Just wow. Folks, wasn't that amazing? I mean, where else are you going to hear that type of stuff? I mean, this is my commitment to you in 2017. I'm going to say 2017. I'm drunk today. 2019. It's so hard when you're uh, dealing with a new year. 2019 to bring on more people like that. And they're so, it's so hard to find someone that knows that much. But then he is also free at least to speak about some things. You know, He wasn't going to give over everything that, that obviously he dealt with that was classified. But uh, often it's hard, and you got to find those that retired from a given agency. They're not going to speak when they're active duty. And if you notice, his main point was, aside from the information he gave out, was the fact that this information needs to be given out. That in itself is the point. People just don't realize it. Everyone in America has heard of ISIS. But nobody really knows about the insane dangers at our border. On the American side of the board, I didn't, we didn't even get a chance to get into this so much. Just the fact that you know he was talking to me last week when we spoke privately about – I forgot the Spanish name for it. The, the, there's a position in the cartels, the lookout 
men, the that that uh, spy on our border agents, not just on the Mexican side of the border, but they're on our soil doing that stuff, and then just in our communities. This is at its core from the social compact of why we have a federal government to protect us. Not only don't they protect us, they do everything they can to cover it up, which is why I can never get full data on the degree of criminality of criminal aliens. Because there's political reasons, they just don't want that to come out. But if it would, we'd get a different picture. You know, as I'm talking right now, you know, big conservative, Mike Lee. From Utah, he's just sitting and praising, um, you know, how another illegal, not not illegal, I don't know if he is illegal, but a drug trafficker is let out of prison and he's all happy. Oh, this is the great result of the First Step Act. And it's like, I, I promise you, I can guarantee you, Mike Lee has never studied the drug crime federal, you know, conviction issue. From a transnational cartel perspective, he would understand we're not talking about low-level people, and we're and he would understand this is not a matter of oh we're just going around locking up people smoking dope in college. This is at its core a transnational external problem in our communities. But that was just a terrific intel briefing that I'm telling you. You know, if you had all these conservative shows committed to doing the same thing we would force this out we would get this out if you had the conservative members of congress holding hearings i'm going to tell you guys this publicly i'm actually working with uh, congressman chip roy that sounds great congressman chip roy you know um i can't believe it he is a congressman now um and some of his texas buddies he's working with them like dan crenshaw um ron wright maybe uh congressman cloud some of the new guys from Texas to try to put together a field hearing because, you know, obviously Democrats control the House. They're never going to do this inside Congress. Put together a field hearing somewhere near the border in Texas and, and give this over. Bring people like Jason and his colleagues, former colleagues on to, to discuss this. And there was another very important lesson I think you, you learned. He spoke a lot about the need to be collaborative. Um, I know when we had Derek Maltz of DEA, retired DEA on – he 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 yelps about this in every you know if you look at his tweeting you know he tweets like a mile a minute, Derek. Um, the need to to just speak with each other. He would see things in DA, but FBI just wouldn't follow up with it. The U.S. Attorney's Office wouldn't follow up with it, and I think that was the success he's talking about of Texas DPS and FBI and um, NYPD that they're self-contained units that take a holistic approach and you don't have cross department problems because you know they might have task forces one guy deals more with the drugs one guy deals more with the terrorism angle meaning the islamic terrorism angle one guy deals with the gangs but it's all under the same umbrella with the same approach and that's what the feds need to be doing that is their job but um it truly is good to hear that texas is doing something right with that and i think you know he's just trying to take that message to uh to um to the federal counterparts and and you know you, you notice he singled out the FBI cuz that's a particular failure so we're going to continue on this beat email me tweet tweet at me let me know what you want um what you want to hear us talk about what you want to hear me ask Jason cuz I'm definitely going to have him back very soon as well as similar people just because again i mean wow was that an education by the way like that man is just a fountain i mean everything you want to know he i mean he's, he's he mentioned he talked about people he sat across the table from they would have informants in each of these cartels i mean a, jason could literally be a cartel member if he wanted he knows i mean and that's what a good um intel officer is he, you know how to think like the enemy but um you have this in your own communities now. You know, Baltimore. Washington Post had an article out recently about the stunning surge of violence in Baltimore. Now, yes, a lot of it was the Freddie Gray domestic war on cops. So the cops are, you know, more tepid than any other place in the country, more dysfunctional because of that whole business. But you know what they mentioned? Just 27% 
of homicides were solved. Nationally, it's about 55%. In Baltimore, it's 27%. In Chicago, the homicide rate has dropped to just 21%. And in Boston, um, it's been down 12 points in the last two years. We're not solving these homicides. A lot of them, as you can see, are these dudes. And don't sit and tell me, oh, don't worry. It's just gang on gang violence. Oh, you don't have to worry about it. First of all, if you have that going on in your own soil, that in itself is a problem. But notice he talked about the human trafficking. We talked a lot about the drug trafficking, the legal immigration in general. But human trafficking, you have Americans that have been kidnapped. It's mainly my understanding, mainly the illegals and you know foreign nationals that are victims of this, but you have Americans that have been picked up, women that have been trafficked. There's stories about that. I'd like to get into that more. None of this should be political, but yet if a tree falls in the forest, who knows? No one knows about it because the government has failed for years to put out data and to try to drive a narrative. The media certainly, you know, they spent all weekend. Oh, what's Trump talking about? A terrorist at the border? Ha ha ha! That doesn't exist. What a bunch of schmucks. Bunch of liars. They revel in their own ignorance. But you know what scares me with these violent, the, the violence? Notice an interesting thing he said. One of the things I always learned when I, um, you know, when I did a tactical training, handgun training was like, Daniel, you know, you're at the level now with handguns that you're better than any of these thugs. And it was true. Typically, the typical thug is horrible at shooting. You know, they have to do it at point blank range. They're not good in what they do. That's changing because when you're talking about when a lot of the inner city violence is being fueled not by kind of the natural inner city violence we had, unfortunately, mainly blacks. Obviously, most blacks are law abiding citizens, but you know, among that population that you know we have that problem with that we're all trying. You know, we've been trying to solve for two generations. Last 10 years or so, it's really been driven. And, and you see from this DA report I quoted, brand new report, by transnational cartels. These guys are like special ops troops. These guys are very well trained. So imagine now having them in your communities rather than, you know, the old image we always had of a, a street gangster who was never particularly well-trained. This is a whole other level of national security concern. So we got that going on. There's a lot more, like I said, I wanted to get to. We'll have to save for tomorrow's show. But really bookmark this show. It's going to be show number 332, episode 332. Um. You could always get it at the Blaze website now is the best way to to, to get it. I'm going to link to our home page so you could just go because um, it's changed all of our, our all of our episodes. But let me know. Let me know what questions you have. If you're seeing certain trends in your communities, you want to like, hey, is this connected to the border as well? You know, I'll I'll ask him and to the extent I can give you an answer. We'll discuss this on the show. Um, you know, both without him, but certainly we want to have him back again. Um, I'll tell you, this is the type of work. That really gives me gives me a heartbeat. You know, I often get down and wonder, like, why do we even do this? This this is so irremediably broken. This whole system, um, even the conservative movement is just so off topic, so distracted. You know, they're talking about uh, Alexandria Ocasio Ocasio Cortez every second. When have I when have I ever talked about her? Why do we give her fuel? She's a media whore. She craves attention, and we just fo- focus on what we want to do. The best way to defeat people like this is to speak the truth on how their border and immigration policies are creating the most violent human and drug trafficking and crime in our cities and communities. That's how you defeat them in elections. I don't need to talk about her, you know, dancing videos or whatever. We're going to remain focused on this stuff, other stuff. Like I said, healthcare is coming to the foray on the Hamas caucus in Congress is now scuttling what was supposed to be bipartisan pro-Israel legislation to go after the BDS movement, very telling as to where the Democrat Party is heading. They originally said that they were blocking the legislation out of, you know, just, uh, you know, to retaliate against the government shutdown. But now it turns out 
they really like the BDS movement. As Bernie Sanders tweeted out today, these are just people exercising their constitutional rights. Well, you're right. They are. So why do we have to have government contracts with them? They don't have a right to a government contract. Anyway, that and more later later this week. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for making us a fast-growing show so we could have guests like this on, such prominent patriotic people in law enforcement and intel that truly want to talk over the rancor. And it's my goal to bring on more people like that every single week. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 